Welcome to the CNS Leadership Institute podcast series, where we are discussing valuable lessons learned with leaders throughout the neurosurgical community. I am Dr. Wechua Dagwa, and today I am pleased to welcome Dr. Alan Scarrow to the podcast to share his insights on the topic of crisis leadership. Dr. Alan Scarrow is a neurosurgeon and former president of the Mercy Health System in Springfield, Missouri. He's also a past president of the Congress of Neurological Surgeons, having served on the CNS Executive Committee from 2005 through 2018. During his tenure on the Executive Committee, Dr. Scar was integral in the development of the CNS Leadership Institute and the launch of the pilot course. This discussion will be moderated by Dr. Brian Nahid of the CNS Leadership Institute. Dr. Brian Nahid is the Director of Neurosurgery Residency Program at MGH and Harvard Medical School and an Associate Professor of Neurosurgery specializing in brain tumors, brain mapping, and intraoperative imaging. Dr. Nahid co-leads an NIH-funded laboratory focused on the development of the first blood test for patients with brain tumors. Dr. Nahid has served on the CNS Executive Committee since 2017 and is a 2021 co-chair of the CNS Leadership Institute. Thank you, Dr. Scarro and Nahid for sharing your insights with our audience today. All right, let's get, uh, let's get started. So Alan, um, we're obviously in the middle of a pandemic um, and certainly it's one of the things we've, and you've chatted about uh, during the CNS Leadership Institute um, sessions are, are about management and particularly management in crisis. Um, this is no better time than to talk about management in crisis. Uh, can you give us an example of how experience with management, good and bad, um, has has uh, gotten people through, um, or even your own experience through a crisis and what you learned? Well, yeah, and I think it's it's probably timely to talk about the COVID nineteen pandemic that we're that we're still in. Um, that was probably the biggest health crisis that we have seen uh, in a, in our lifetime, and I I think um, at least you know from from my perspective. Um, our, our hospitals and, and healthcare institutions did some very good things, and I think they did some not so good things. So, so I think I think we should probably talk about that a little bit. Um, so, I think you know, first of all, I, I think when the pandemic first started in the early spring last year, what you saw initially was just you know a lot of fear, um, almost you know panic and paralysis. Nobody really knew what to do nobody nobody knew what covid-19 what it, what it, what it, what it was how severe it would be um, and so that 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 those first few weeks or even the first first couple months I, I thought we really spun our wheels a lot you know what was interesting was you know it it, it you know we were we were 100 years after you know the great influenza and there's, you know, there was really good books written about that in, you know, the early 2000s, mid 2000s. Um, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. So, I mean, I can't say that we didn't know what was what was what was about to happen. I mean, we had some insight as to kind of how long this would last and, and the fear and panic that was set in. But um, but initially, you know, we I thought we responded very poorly. I mean, we just kind of froze and we didn't know what to do. And, and, and that lack of information, um, I, th I thought really, um, really kind of set us back for a while. Um, you know, it was interesting also because, 
you know, there's this saying, uh, Andy Grove, who was, used to be the CEO of Intel, he had this, this saying that, that, that snow melts from the outside in, meaning that, that, that things like crises, you don't hear about it around the boardroom, you don't hear it uh, in the White House or in Washington, D.C., you, you hear about it out in the periphery. And the Wuhan province is, is probably about as far out in the periphery as you can, can get. And then it's, you know, with, with transportation being what it is, uh, you know, that, that, that melting effect really happened, you know, very quickly. So, you know, there's another saying that, you know, crises takes longer than you would think, but happens quicker than you would have thought, right? So all of a sudden it's a big deal. And even people in the most remote areas thought, you know, I'm safe. There's not, you know, this is not gonna really affect me. And, and we were absolutely wrong. Um, just like uh, we were wrong a hundred years ago to think that the you know the influenza pandemic wasn't going to go where it was where where it did. So I think I think then once once that initial panic kind of kind of came over people, a lot of healthcare organizations thought, oh my God, um, we're not going to have any revenue. We're not going to have any revenue coming in because it's going to be all really sick. COVID patients, we're going to shut down all of our elective surgeries, we're going to shut down our imaging, we're going to, we're going to shut down all the things that are profitable to this to us. And so we got to lay people off. And so a lot of healthcare workers got laid off. And, and that I think was a was a big mistake. Because now as we'll talk about in a little bit, I mean, we're hearing the echoes of that now a year and a half later, where in a in a time of crises, um, being laid off by your healthcare employer, um, I think really forms some distrust. Like, I'm not sure I'm safe here. I'm not sure um, that, 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 you know, the, the integrity of the organization, um, you know, they're not, they're not doing what they're saying. They say I'm valuable, but when it really starts to get bad, I'm not necessary. And, and, and I think that was, that was harsh, you know, so now, um, a year and a half later, you know, one in five healthcare workers have left healthcare, and 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 that 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 loss of employment is it's, it's predominantly among women, because women are the you know a, a, the largest part of the of the healthcare workforce labor force. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to do to to fix that problem in the short term anyway. Um, you know what you're seeing now are salaries for nurses, uh, technicians, and so forth that are three and four times what they were at pre-pandemic levels. You know, we have, um, you know, search techs that are, that are leaving to go on a traveling gig for $4,000 a week, nurses for $10,000 a week. Um, that's, that's hard to turn down, I think. And that's making our manpower shortage, probably a better word is woman power shortage, um, I think even worse. So, um, so I think in that next phase, um, I, I think healthcare it, it, it really kind of fumbled um, for I think you know the, kind of the, the summer and, and, and fall of, of of 2020 when a lot of people got got laid off. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it's an amazing thing to unpack, um, and particularly from you know you you said a lot of really uh, important points, particularly as we think of leadership, but you know, the initial response to the pandemic. And I, 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 I love that you said, it's not like we didn't know what was gonna happen. Um, and so 
what are your thoughts on how to prepare um, either an individual leader or frankly, even organizations to, to not misstep or overstep in that initial phase? Right. And then the follow-up well, to that is obviously, let's say you have made that misstep and you finally figure it out, you know, 18 months later that you don't have to Lysol all of your groceries. Like what is that aftermath? Um, and, and how do you, you know, that two-part question of the initial and then what if you've gone the wrong way? How do you sort of back up? So, so I, I probably on the heels of that criticism, I should also say, you know, Brian, that right now, you know, 18 months in, I, I think you're probably seeing American healthcare, and I might even broaden that to Americans, um, performing at a very high level with regard to the pandemic. I mean, we're collecting data, um, we're, we're getting people vaccinated, we're getting information out there. And granted, there's a pushback against that, against vaccinations and, and so forth. But, but you know, we have, we have really geared up now and, and, and are doing a great job. By the way, I, I think there are some parallels to draw in history from this. I mean, this is sort of how the United States works. We overreact to nearly everything. I mean, the Russians send up uh, Sputnik in 1957. We absolutely panic. You know, the world is going to crash uh, around us and we're going to get nuked and it's going to be horrible. But out of that, um, you know, we created GPS and a global satellite network that's unbelievable. Um, you know, it, 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 we, we had the same thing happen in the 70s with the gas crisis. Remember, uh, there were lines for gasoline and we absolutely panicked. And we said, this is, this is horrible. But out of that grew the oil shale industry. And, um, you know, probably uh, uh, something that nobody saw coming. So once Americans kind of get going, uh, we're really good. I, I think uh, responding to crises, uh, but it, it takes a while. I think it was Winston Churchill that said, uh, you know, the Americans will always do the right thing after exhausting all the other possibilities, right? And maybe that is, that's, that's how we, uh, maybe that's how we work. Um, so I, I think um, you, you, you said kind of what to do in a, in a crisis. Um, you know, the most important thing a leader is ever going to do during, during a crisis is to calm down and think, all right? You don't rush your way out of a crisis. You don't wait your way out of a crisis. You work your way out of a crisis. And in order to work your way out of a crisis, you have to be able to define what is the crisis? What is part of this crisis, but what's not a part of it? Once, once you do that, now you've got to come up with, okay, what are all the ways that we can address this, okay? And then you make a decision. You make a plan, knowing that your plan is going to be wrong. Absolutely, unequivocally, it's going to be wrong. As new information comes in, your plan has to change. Your thinking has to change. You can't be rigid in a crisis because nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. I mean, I said you know that we we, we kind of knew what happened with the, the in the great influenza crisis of a hundred years ago, but this was still different. I mean, it's behaved a little different from the, from the uh, influenza virus. So, um, you know, the best plans in a crisis are the ones that you can change. So there's a saying that, you know, the, the, the plans mean nothing, but the planning means everything. You've got to be able to think about what, what am I going to do if new information comes in, I got to be flexible, I got to change my mind. Um, 
so I, I think, I think that's, that's the key for what leaders have to do, you know, during, during a crisis, especially a big crisis like the one we've just been through. Yeah, I love that. Now, we've spoken a lot about the individual and the leader. Um, what, what thoughts do you have? Certainly, you've not only uh, run large organizations, but certainly led our, our CNS um, and are, uh, you know, some would say a, a gifted leader. But when, when, in addition to that leader and building the team, have you found that um, empowering those around you helps figure out you know, not only the plan, but the planning yeah. um, and not being rigid and, and, and where has that sort of, um, what advice do you have? Yeah. So I think Brian, the, the worst possible time to build your leadership team is during a crisis. And in a way, I think Warren Buffett said this, you know, when, when the tide goes out, you find who out, who's, who's swimming naked. Right. So in a crisis, the tide goes out and you find out who's really got strong culture and who doesn't have strong culture. Because when that crisis hits, the most likely people to panic are those with the least experience. And if you haven't built um, a a relationship as a leader with those with the least experience, um, they're gonna struggle. Um, and, and, and you've always, I think, got to kind of take the temperature of you, if you will, of, of your team in terms of, listen, I'm, I'm, you know, if, 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 if people are panicking in the middle of a crisis, okay, that's not helping anything. And the way to avoid that panic, again, is to, to have that plan. But that plan is also based on the relationship that you develop pre-crisis. So if you have a strong leadership team, you have a strong relationship with the rest of your leadership team, uh, the, the crisis will be tough, but it, it will be manageable. I mean, there's another saying that I, I think this is Andy Grove uh, from, from Intel said, he said, you know, crises make bad companies, you know, be, be, they, they go away, they fold. Good companies survive, but great companies thrive. And I might say the same thing about hospitals. I mean, hospitals that have, or leadership teams in hospitals and, and physician organizations that have great culture, um, they're going to get better through a crisis like this, um, as opposed to, to just surviving or, or letting it ruin them. So I, I, think, that's, I think that's very important. Um, um, crises will expose good and bad leadership. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you raised a really important point about the workforce, and particularly uh, one in five is, is, is leaving our, mm-hmm. our healthcare workforce. Um, and so much of that is, as you pointed out, is, is not only the day-to-day experience, but frankly, the trust or the relationship. Um, and you speak a lot about culture. So what's the solution? How do we, how do we build back better to quote Biden? Or, you know, how do we restore that trust? Particularly when, you know, it is pretty damaging when, you know, things are going sour and you lose a job or all of a sudden your value is not as valued as you thought. Yeah. Um, how do you restore that to build that workforce or can you? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think this is a really important question, Brian. And, and I think I'm trying to figure out probably like, like everybody's trying to figure it out. There is, um, there is a cultural shift going on in this 
country. And I, and I, I would say I mean, to those who would say, well, there's always cultural shift. I would say, yeah, but, but history kind of sh- changes in, in, in bounds. I mean, it, it, it goes along for a little while and then there's a jump. I would say that this, this last, that, that this pandemic was, was one of those jumps. And here's kind of what I'm, I just sense a little bit. You know, you have the millennial generation that is now kind of entering the workforce. Um, they're, they're becoming the young um, consumers. They're becoming the young growers. Um, it's a different generation. It's a generation that um, doesn't seem to be having as many children. They don't seem to be acquiring as much wealth. And they also um, don't seem to be as tethered to where they live. They're more mobile. Um, they have fewer possessions. They own less furniture, for example. They're less likely to own a home. Um, but as a result, they, they are a very mobile generation. And I think what we've seen in the pandemic has just accelerated that. Um, people no longer think, well, I, I joined this hospital or this healthcare organization. I need to stay. Um, this is where I live, this is where I'm from, this is where my kids are at. If you don't have those kind of things that kind of moor you to that, to that place, um, you know, you, you have very little um, loyalty to that place. And so when you say, how do you, you know, build a culture? I think to some extent, you gotta kind of let the past go I mean, you're very, you're, you're a lot less likely, I would say, to find employees um, for your organization that are planning to be around for a couple decades. They're more likely to think, I'll be here while the opportunity is good. Um, and then when the opportunity is not, I'll go somewhere else. And I think as a leader, some of those things you have to accept. You have to accept that you're not going to have the same type of uh, tenured, uh, experienced workforce that you, you've always had. And my sense is that the organizations that are sort of um, getting that, um, that, that embrace that and not try to fight it, um, they're the ones that are growing right now. And, you know, healthcare has not been an industry that's so good at that. Healthcare is very good at managing the status quo, but it's not so good at change. Um, in, in, in part, that's because the nature of what we do tends to be very risky. Um, we're a little bit like, you know, police departments or fire departments. I mean, there's, there's, there's times of crises um, um, or times of, you know, emergencies when things, there needs to be a hierarchy in place. And hierarchies are not so good uh, for handling change. And I think that that sort of feeds into what we're seeing culturally, where you have a lot of millennials that are not so down with a hierarchical structure they, they much prefer a flatter um, uh, administrative or leadership structure where they're a part of things. They're helping to make decisions. They're listened to. And so I, I think this is, again, one of those, 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 those times in history when there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big bound here. There's a big shift. And, um, and I, I think that the organizations, the hospitals, the healthcare systems that are able to embrace that that change, that shift, um, are, are the ones that are going to be successful. And I won't pretend to know how I, how this is all going to turn out. I'm I'm not quite sure um, because this is this is kind of unprecedented. We have never seen a generation that is this mobile, this flexible, this 
um, untethered um, to a, a place or to an organization. And so building that culture is, is going to be, I think it's, it's, it's going to be different. It's probably going to be a little trickier too. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it's a daunting task. It's like moving a ship and expecting to do it to avoid that iceberg when uh, it's been there the whole time. Um, as, a, as a leader, how do, you, how do you know, like what metrics do you find helpful to, to, as a sanity check that you're doing the right things when your environment's changing? Do you have metrics that you so, look at or do you talk to people or do you, how do you I, look in the mirror think, and know that it's working? I think one of the, the metrics to, to follow, Brian, and, and I'm, you, you know, um, I, I almost, the, the hair on my neck stands up a little bit when I hear metrics anymore, because we have so many metrics that we're following that, um, you know, I, I, I think in a lot of cases, uh, you know, the leadership is so fearful of making a decision without good data that judgment is sort of has to take a back seat. And, um, you know, when judgment takes a back seat, the, the listening to people on the front line also uh, gets tapered down. Instead of listening to people's stories about their experiences, we tend to say, well, what does the data show? And data doesn't capture everything. Um, you know, data doesn't capture um, how you've responded to a crisis. It doesn't capture how calm or how panicked uh, a, a team is. And so um, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not, uh, I think I'm at a place right now where I'm, I'm not as enamored with metrics as maybe I was pre-pandemic. Now, that being said, I mean, you, you can't just uh, freewheel it either. I mean, it's, you gotta have, you gotta have some, some information, some data to make decisions. I would say, uh, you know, a particularly important thing right now is what's, what's your turnover rate of your employees, particularly your new hires. Um, because if, if the turnover rate is high for your new hires, um, something's wrong. Something's wrong with the culture. I mean, we just talked about that. Yes, people are not, not moored or tethered to a location. But if people are only sticking around two, three, six months, something like that and moving on, um, they're, they're giving you all the feedback that you need that this is, this is kind of a toxic place. This is not a place I wanna, I wanna you know, put any roots down at all. I, I need to move on. Um, so I, I, think, I think that's important. I think also, um, and, and maybe this is not a metric so much, but it gets back to what I was talking about earlier. And that is, excuse me, what, what changes that resulted from the pandemic and that resulted from this crisis do you need to make permanent within your culture? Um, that is, that's a pretty high level, high level thinking right there because now you're trying to incorporate what was, what was crisis and what was cultural. What, 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 is, what is gonna be permanent here? Uh, what's going to endure? Um, and, and I think those, those are the conversations that I think are happening in, in all organizations right now. Um, you know, whether you're running a fast food place or a retail place, a manufacturing place or a hospital, you're trying to figure out now, okay, what do I need to have 
in person? What can I do online? Uh, what can I have automated? What can I have a robot do? Um, I mean, those are, those are really hard questions um, with, with, with major implications to the culture of your organization, but they gotta be asked now because in a lot of places you don't have a choice, right? You don't have the workforce anymore um, to, to sort of have the liberty to sit around and think about that and come up with, with uh, you know, with, with better people solutions because you don't have the people to do it. So, um, so I, I think that's another really important, not a metric so much, but a, a set of decisions that need to get, that, that need to be made uh, very quickly. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's such a trying time because as you said, the landscape's so different that, you know, if, if you mentioned a all virtual clinic <laughs> two years ago, people would have thought you were crazy. And now it's, you know, arguably one of the better things that have come out. Yeah. Um, so for all the, all the listeners out there who are now inspired to be part of that change, certainly the flatter structure that you mentioned, the, you know, the flat hierarchy, how, how, do, how does one go about being part of the change in a, you know, raising their hand and getting noticed? And, you know, a lot of folks have great ideas, but yeah. it might either be too junior or frankly, just, you know, as a surgeon, not making it to those meetings because, yeah. you know, it's filled with all the other specialties. Right. So... So I, I think, Brian, one thing that always, at least to, to my eyes, always sets a, a, a new team member apart. I mean, is, is somebody, a, particularly a physician, a neurosurgeon, that doesn't just point out a problem, right? There are plenty of people that are pointing out problems. There's no shortage of that. I mean, it's easy to say, you see that problem over there? Yeah, <laughs> somebody needs to fix it. That's not helpful. Now, it's a little bit helpful because you want to know where the problems are at. But what you really want is, okay, well, you're on the front line there. Um, how would you propose that we fix that? How would you propose that we make that better? And so the, the, the surgeons, the physicians that can raise their hand and go, um, yeah, uh, let me, give me 24 hours and I'll, I'll get back with you. Or give me a week and I'll get back with you. And they put together a plan that's actually operational. I mean, that you could really do. It's not, you know, go spend $3 million on this thing. And, and I mean, that's, that's, that's not as helpful, but here's what we can do. Here's a plan. Here's the capital that we need. Here's the people we would need. Here's who I need to partner with. That will get the attention of the, the, the leaders around you. And, 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 and you then, uh, the person that does that, they're a person of action. They're somebody that you can rely on. They're just pointing out problems. They're helping you with solutions. And I would say for most healthcare administrators who are not clinical, by the way, in, in most cases, that is, that's their blind spot is they, they don't have frontline or real world, if you will, experience in the hospital or the clinic. And, and so they, they sort of crave that and they, they crave it because it's, that's, that's their weakness. Right. And, and so they they need that. They need physicians um, and healthcare providers to sort of fill that. that so that's uh, the, so that's not a blind spot anymore. So that's what I would I would do now. Managing your your time, as you as you brought up, uh, Brian, I mean, it's really hard. Right. Because you can't start a new activity without stopping an old activity. You can't create more time. 
And so if you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm in surgery and I'm in clinic and I'm in those things, like, what am I supposed to do this? Um, what am I going to stop doing in order to create time to do that? Um, that's a much harder question. Um, but I would say that that's what leaders do. I mean, they, they, they find a way to get that done. Um, and and uh, I, I, that, that is the challenge though for most, for most neurosurgeons. And I, maybe I just should put as an, a little uh, addendum on that. So one of the problems that most neurosurgeons have with regard to their leadership style is it's, it's very autocratic. Meaning that when you're in the operating room, you're in charge and you need to be because again, that's a kind of a, an urgent situation. If you say things are not going well, here's what I need this and I need this and I need this. I mean, that's what happens, right? But in a committee room or in a, in a different circumstance where it's, it's not an urgent situation, that doesn't work very well. People don't like to be told what to do all the time in order to get them to feel like they're part of the solution, they need to be part of the decision-making process. And surgeons are often not so good at doing that. Um, they're just like, I just, I'll just take care of it. I'll just get it done because that's kind of what you've done your entire life. Um, but when you're, when you're working with a team, um, you need to step back a little bit, um, certainly offer your ideas, but what you're doing is sort of helping the team along. You're pulling their ideas out. You're assigning responsibility. You're holding them accountable. It's not just you. Uh, it's 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 not just you. You know, on a on a one man wagon. I mean, you're you're you got a whole wagon full of people that need to come along for the ride. I I love that. I I. What thoughts or advice do you have um, to our listeners of of empowering those in your team? Um, and, and helping them rise beyond their own potential to, to what you can envision, but also ultimately build that amazing leadership team that you're describing. Um, how, how does one do that best? Yeah, so, so you know, that transition from kind of being the worker to the leader is one that not everybody makes, honestly, because it's, it's hard. Um, because you have to share responsibility, but you also have to share the credit, right? You're, you're sort of pushing the limelight away from yourself a lot in order to develop other, other people. And I, I'll, I'll say, I, you know, I think a lot of surgeons, a lot of neurosurgeons struggle with that. Um, and it's, it's the culture that we're sort of raised in, right? The, it's the environment that we're raised in. I mean, your whole training up until and including your active practice is um, about your performance, right? It's your grades, your test scores, how many cases you're doing, your board scores, you, 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 you. And the transition then is, is well, it's not about you anymore. This is about your team. And so again, you know, pushing out that responsibility to others, sharing the credit with them, holding them up in front of, uh, you know, your, whatever you want to call it, your leaders, your bosses, and saying, look what this person did on my team. So great. You know, never would have done this without them. I mean, those are the kind of accolades that team members crave. And if they get that from you, 
then they want more, right? They want, they want they, they, you now are a trustworthy person. You're not going to just take, take, take. You're also giving. And, and that's a big part of leadership is giving or giving that credibility or giving that credit, giving that response and pushing it away from you. Um, you know, there's a, there's a saying that the older you get, the, the, the more you are valued for who you are and not what you do. Um, now that's a little different in, in, in neurosurgery because yes, I mean, you're still, you got to do the work, right? I mean, you got to go to the operating room, go to the clinic, you got to do the work in order to have credibility. But when you're a leader, um, it becomes less about that and it becomes more about who you are and who people perceive you to be. That's awesome. So thinking about where we started, um, you know, the management in the time of crisis, if you were to go back and sort of give advice to the leaders in this country of the healthcare systems, you know, what advice would you give them? And, and uh, the second part to that is, you know, what are the top three things that anybody should, should make sure they have as, as they're building their leadership team um, to be prepared and balanced? Yeah. So, um, so I, I think, I think the, the, the first thing I would say in, in retrospect, Brian, um, and that's always a dangerous thing to say, right? Because the retrospectoscope is always 2020, right? right. Like, like if I was so brilliant, like <laughs> why wasn't I saying it 18 months ago, right? Okay. Um, but I, I think the, the, the first thing I would have liked to have heard more of this, I'll, I'll say it that way. I would have liked to hear more of, this is what we know. These are the facts, okay? This is how many people got infected. Um, this is how many people have, have died. Um, but to have some idea of, okay, not everybody's gonna be hospitalized. Not everybody's gonna die from this, okay? These are the percentages, okay? That's, those were facts that you could have spread, you know, that, that, that could have been put out there. I think more clearly. I think the second thing that we kind of made a mistake with was it, it seemed like each day there was um, a, 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 a new kind of edict. Like, okay, you don't need a mask. You need a mask. You could be six, no, it's, it's 10 feet. Well, six feet would be okay. Never outdoors, okay, indoor. And so people are like, what? What? And I, and I think I think what I would have liked to have heard is more, we don't know everything. Okay, we're trying to figure this out. Here's today what we think is gonna be safe. But as new information and new data comes in, we're gonna, we're gonna be changing our mind and we're gonna communicate that to you. Okay, so don't be shocked when we come in tomorrow and say, here's new information, it's a new decision, we think this is what we need to do now. Um, I, I think some of that was, was, you know, was, was really missing. I think in an effort to act like um, we, everything was under control, there were these, these statements that were made um, and, and, and they had to be reversed later. And that just, that I think the credibility, particularly of the government really suffered during that time because nobody really knew what was the truth. It's not a man-made virus, absolutely not. And then a week later, well, it could be a man-made virus. We're not really, maybe, maybe so. And then, you know, I think when you make those kind of statements like that um, and don't qualify it with, we're looking into it, 
we're not sure. This is a novel thing. Nobody's ever dealt with this before. So stay calm. We'll have more info. We'll, 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 have, we'll have more information, you know, as it as it comes in. Is that's kind of what I would have I would have liked to have heard. And then maybe the final, if I had to come up with a third message, is we will get through this. All right. This is not the first pandemic that's ever hit the world. There has been plague and pestilence and TB and influenza and smallpox. And guess what? Uh, we got through all those things. We're even going to be better because we have all this knowledge now that we didn't have 100 years ago or 500 years ago. So we're going to figure this out. So stay calm. I um, it's, it's not only inspiring, but I think it's helpful to hear um, Ultimately, I think being vulnerable and sharing what you know and you don't know is, 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 I think, one of the hardest things to do as a leader. Yeah. And, and maybe that engenders some um, hope and, you know, ability to join that team. And, um, you know, for those who want the flatter structure, take part or come, come up with a solution. Um, but I, I can imagine, you know, particularly the workforce, the, that one in five who's burning out or, or leaving. Um, do you think there's anything that a leader can do to inspire, to bring them back or um, change things and be aware of that, you know, that turnover? Um, once somebody's sort of left the reservation, are they going to come back or not? Yeah. Um, no doubt it's, it's tough, Brian. Um, but I, I think... I think particularly in a field like healthcare, when the motivators in the healthcare um, are largely intrinsic, okay? I mean, you can, you can certainly create extrinsic motivators, namely money, benefits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and those are certainly necessary part of, of, of the healthcare workforce. Um, but people choose healthcare for a lot of intrinsic reasons. They like how it makes them feel. They are givers, they are providers. They want to help people, not to be too cliche-ish by saying that. Um, so I, I think you have to appeal to that side of, of the folks who are, are, or were a part of the healthcare workforce. You know, we, we are part of a, of a great calling. You know, our cause is noble here to care for other people. And I would appreciate it if you joined me in, in, in fulfilling that mission um, and, and being a part of that noble cause uh, because uh, there's, there's, the sick people aren't gonna go away. Um, the crisis, uh, the pandemic will get over um, and, and life will return to normal, but normal means there's still gonna be a lot of sick people and we need people to take care of them and if you feel that calling, um, we, we'd love for you to be a part of our team. Um, and, and then I think you, you, you gotta let people come to you. You know, you, there's a saying that you, you have to stay on your side of the net, right? But people have to come up from, from their side. Um, you're, you're not gonna, um, I don't think you're gonna pay your way out of this. I mean, the days of paying, as I mentioned before, $10,000 a week for a nurse or $4,000 a week, uh, you know, for a tech, um, those numbers just don't work over the long term, um, unless the federal government insurance companies just start paying four, four or five times what they, they are now. I don't, I don't think that works. 
So um, eventually we're going to have to get back to why do you want to be in this industry? Why do you want to be in healthcare? Why do you want to work at this hospital or this clinic or whatever? Um, those are the things that, that last. Um, the money will come and go, but, but what is it that really draws you to this and makes you want to get up every morning and come to work here and take care of people? That's, that's what I think you need to connect with. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And hopefully as leaders and future leaders, we can inspire folks who, to come into our amazing field and for those in it to continue and, and be successful. Yeah. Um, this has been awesome, Alan. Uh, I can't thank you enough. On behalf of the CNS Leadership Institute, you've been with us from the beginning. Um, one of my favorite um, course directors and, and I always learn everything and many things from talking to you. And I appreciate you taking time tonight to, to chat. Well, that's very kind of you, Brian. Thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity and um, I hope it's helpful. Well, I'm, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm prepared for the next pandemic. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very All right. good. Good to see you guys. Take care.